Welcome back to the Strategic Investment Conference. Our final session of the day was inspired by a podcast. Before the pandemic, I would drive from my home in Connecticut to Vermont every other week thereabouts, and I meet with Olivier Garay, Malden Economics CEO. And on those drives, I would always listen to podcasts. And the first one that I would always queue up is Bloomberg's Masters in Business podcast. It's hosted by Barry Ritholtz. Barry is a busy guy. His day job is serving as chairman and chief investment officer at Ritholtz Wealth Management. And on the side, he's a Bloomberg opinion columnist, and he's the creator and driving force behind the big picture, one of the most influential and broadly read financial blogs on the web. You can find it at Ritholtz.com. So my hope was that Barry would consider bringing a master's in business style interview to the SIC stage, and thankfully, he agreed. Today, he interviews Catherine Wood. She's the CEO and chief investment officer at ARC Investment Management. She invests exclusively in disruptive innovators in spaces like genome sequencing, robotics, AI, energy storage, and blockchain technology. Her CV is pretty amazing. She's managed over $5 billion as an investment officer and portfolio manager, and she served as a research analyst, and portfolio manager, and a chief economist at noted firms prior to founding ARC. It is great to have you both with us. Welcome to the Strategic Investment Conference. Thanks so much for having us. So I've been looking forward to this conversation for literally a couple of years. Catherine, you and I had a conversation in, of all places, Iceland, just outside of the Blue Lagoon at a bar where we talked about Tesla and a lot of things we're going to talk about today. We were supposed to have you on Masters in Business um, fairly recently, but something got in the way, I don't know, something about a pandemic that prevented <laughs> us from doing the Masters in Business live and in person. So I'm very excited about having this time to, to chat with you. So well, let's, thank you, Barry. Let's, uh, let's jump right into this. Um, I, I have to start with your background. You went to USC where you studied with a gentleman named Art Laffer, who I think might have had a little influence on the way you look at the world. Tell us about uh, you and your work with art. Yes, well, uh, I was art student at USC, and uh, I, I, I couldn't believe that I was going to be able to enjoy a major where, you know, first I'd get to learn about current events, and then slowly but surely art would then suck us into the most complex uh, mathematical equations you could imagine. Uh, he made the subject so interesting and inspired my love of economics and, and investing generally. He also introduced me to Capital Group on the West Coast when I was a junior in college. And I started at Capital when I was a junior. And I said, wow, I can't believe this kind of an institution exists. Because, again, studying the way the world was going to work, not just next year, but 20 years from now. So, 77, I was a junior, uh, and uh, they were studying about Hong Kong 1997. I said, I want to do this. Quite, quite interesting. You eventually work your way through a number of different hedge funds and various investment firms, ending up at Alliance Bernstein, where you managed about $5 billion for close to 12 years. Is that about right? That's about so, right. So tell us about your time in Alliance Bernstein. What were you doing there? 
before we make the leap to the present day? Okay, yes, I was chief investment officer of their global thematic strategies. And uh, with uh, Lou Sanders, when he was CEO, first Bruce Calvert and then Lou Sanders, they wanted to carve out uh, some research that was very differentiated compared to traditional stock-driven research. Uh, they wanted research that was going to start from the bottom, I mean, from the top down, trying to figure out uh, how the world was going to work, not how it did work. And we were in the middle of the tech and telecom bust when I came in. And uh, I had been through, uh, I had been at uh, my own hedge fund, and we had pulled away from technology because during the tech and telecom bubble, too much capital, too soon, and that ended in tears. Uh, and so I came in and and de-emphasized technology, and we moved to other themes. They couldn't be as technology-oriented as we are now because that was all sorting itself out. 20 years later, uh, the gleam in the eye of the internet bubble uh, is a reality. And the irony as an investor is that during the tech and telecom bubble, I watched investors chase the dream, chase it. And uh, valuations uh, became uh, metrics measured in terms of eyeballs. Uh, and today, the dream is becoming reality. And I, I sense such fear and reticence and the fear of volatility in particular. I think investors have forgotten that volatility works both ways. Volatility on the upside is a very good thing. I think it was Mark Andreessen who said all those ideas back then were just a little early. Pets.com is now the ver modern version of it is Chewy.com and it's very successful. So yeah. valuations do matter. Um, yeah. So you spend you spend 12 years at Alliance Bernstein, and in 2014 you make the decision to launch your own firm. From what I've heard from you and what I've read, the consensus of your friends and colleagues was, "What is she thinking? This is a crazy idea." It didn't seem like they had um, high expectations for the odds of your success. Yeah, I think most people thought uh, I was doing a very unwise thing. Um, but my experience in this business is if everyone is running in one direction and you start to run in the other and you seem crazy, uh, if you're right, if you're right, the rewards are enormous. And I learned that very early on in economics when I first started in the business interest rates at 15 and a quarter on the long-term treasury bond. And uh, I, uh, working with Art Laffer and other economists and, and, and portfolio managers, mentors, uh, we were figuring out, wait a minute, uh, there are all kinds of signs here that interest rates and inflation are peaking. But it took uh, until Henry Kaufman in August of 1982 capitulated and said, you know what, maybe inflation is not embedded in the system at a double digit rate. It took a good two years and for others, maybe even four to five years to really believe that inflation and interest rate had turned. Uh, those of us who had taken that position early uh, did very well with it. You know, I've noticed a number of people have been coming out lately and talking about inflation as a potential threat, like it's the 1970s again. Do you have any any opinion on the odds of an inflationary spike anytime over the next 
couple of quarters or even years? Well, I have to be very humble about this one because while I got that first one right, I was worried after 0809. I, I watched the kindling uh, uh, on the central bank's balance sheets and said, oh my gosh, this, this, this could turn into one massive wave here of inflation. It did not. It did not. And what we learned from that pe period was, yes, the, the kindling was out there, but nobody lit it. There was so much caution and the velocity of money started falling and it's still falling. Right. In fact, right. that M2 is up 21% on a year over year basis. So velocity is collapsing here because clearly the economy is not up 21% uh, or in fact, it's down. So velocity is collapsing. And uh, so right now, no worry about it. For the next couple of years, not really worried about it. And there are two reasons. One, uh, I think the productivity burst we're about to experience is going to surpass anything we've seen, uh, maybe even in my investment lifetime. And, and that's because I think the rubber band has stretched here. Uh, businesses uh, were for 12 to 18 months before the coronavirus, they were pulling back. They weren't keeping up with the consumer in terms of building inventories. They were cutting capital spending. They were worried about the China-US trade conflict and they were worried about the inverted yield curves last year, which everybody thought would surely lead to a recession in the next 12 to 18 months. So they were pulling back. And guess what? Uh, there is a recession, not for the reason they thought, uh, there is a recession. Meanwhile, we see the consumer saving rate. I don't know if you've noticed these numbers. They're crazy. Uh, before the crisis, we were up to 8%. High rate by historical standards for the U.S. Right. In March, we got to 13%. In April, 20%. And so what that's telling me, I realize how much despair there is out there in certain quarters of the economy. And it is heartbreaking. But what the aggregate numbers tell me is the amount of pent-up demand out there is enormous. And mm -hmm. when it goes, businesses are going to be way behind. We will end up with a stronger uh, recovery. It will be very high in terms of productivity. And the other tailwinds for productivity here are, are what has happened to innovation. Almost every platform that Ed mentioned at the beginning uh, ha is gaining traction now at an accelerated rate, faster than it would have gained traction had we not had the coronavirus crisis. So those uh, in, those platforms are all deflationary. They're all the the reason they're taking off is costs are falling as the learning curve evolves, and we're getting waves of demand unleashed. And we think that's going to be true across the board. So uh, those are going to be very deflationary impulses. The counter will be the kindling on the on the central bank's balance sheet. So there's going to be a tug of war there, but I don't think we're going to see a big inflation cycle I think uh, for, for a number of years. I do worry about it in the out years. And the reason I worry about it un is that now, unlike uh, after 08, 09, uh, people are saying, yeah, inflation yeah, we didn't see it the last time. It's unlikely. Slow growth economy. This coronavirus has killed killed some sectors as well. It's going to take a long time to come back. Whenever people start to let their guard down on something like inflation, uh, I, I get more uh, concerned about the possibility. And of course, gold and potentially Bitcoin are starting to reflect the same.
Hmm, quite interesting. Let's talk a little bit about your business model, that which I find quite fascinating. You come from a big Wall Street firm from Alliance Bernstein. Previously, they sell research, as does name of them, Merrill Lynch, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, UBS, whoever. You took a very open tack and said, we're going to make everything open source. We're going to take our research, put it on the web. We're going to take our thinking about different investments. We're going to put it on social media. We are going to share everything we think about the world of investing and lay it out for everybody to see. That's a somewhat radical approach, isn't it? Uh, we call it radical transparency, uh, and that's that's very much what we are. Uh, not only do we push our research out and share it, mostly in social media, uh, we push it out not when it's finished, but as it's evolving, because our analysts and I want to become a part of the communities we're researching. We believe we're the first sharing economy company in the asset management space when it comes to research. And in the sharing economy, especially in the social context, if you don't give, you're not gonna get back. We have gotten so much more back than I ever dreamed we would from professors, from venture capitalists, from entrepreneurs, for the people who's, who have rolled up their shirt sleeves and are doing the innovating heads down. Why? This is a, this is a, a, a complementary or a collaborative effort. Those who are innovating heads down, rushing uh, to ch transform the world, don't have time to size the opportunity. We spend all of our time sizing the opportunity. We're looking at uh, how learning curves are evolving and costs are declining. We're looking at when those costs are going to decline enough to capture another market. So the price elasticity of demand every step along the way. Uh, and we're also doing it in a way uh, that I think if others want to emulate us, they'll have to restructure their research departments because our every one of our analysts effectively is a tech analyst, no matter what they're covering, healthcare, industrial, they're very comfortable with technology. Technology is seeping into every industry, every sector, blurring the lines between and among sectors. And beyond that, the five platforms that Ed uh, introduced our panel with, uh, they are converging. So there's no way you can be a sector analyst and understand the kind of innovation and how quickly it's going to evolve if you don't understand the technologies that are driving them. Uh, so, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to ask, let's talk about those sector analysts. You have said in the past, you think the traditional sectors that we define things as finance and energy and consumer, all the S&P sectors, or even if you want to get more granular, are effectively meaningless, especially given how technology has changed so many companies in so many sectors. Do yeah. we even, should we even conceptualize companies as belonging in different sectors? And what sector is an Amazon in and what sector is a Tesla in? They seem mm -hmm. to straddle a lot of different areas. Yes. Uh, when at, 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 I was at Alliance Bernstein. There I used to describe what we were doing as we were uh, moving more into the technologically enabled uh, uh, innovation. I used to say, well, these are stocks that fall through the cracks. 
Uh, and actually, I started in my career that way. That's how I got my break at Jenison Associates under Sig Sigalis. Um, I wanted to move from economics. I wanted to keep the economics. I love economics, but I wanted to become a research analyst, an equity research analyst. And he said, fine, uh, but you know, our analysts here are lifers. You're going to have to find your own universe. So what did that, that force me to do? Uh, when Reuters went public in the 80s, nobody knew what to do with it. Uh, right. It was called a database publishing company. Well, it wasn't a publishing company and it wasn't a database company. So nobody wanted it. I took it. Uh, same thing happened with Vodafone. Nobody knew what to do with that. And oh, by the way, there'd only be a million of these big uh, phones sold at any given time in the next 20 years. So again, underestimated, fall through the cracks. It's been a beautiful way to edge my way towards innovation and now do it in a full-blown way. So now let's talk a little bit about your process. How do you go from thinking about a particular um, space, a particular area, technology, one of these five platforms that you might publish about, how does that become uh, a specific holding in one of your portfolios? Yes. So uh, first, first, we're studying the technologies themselves. Are they ready for prime time? Um, so an easy uh, way to explain what I mean by that is in the early 2000s, part of the tech and telecom bubble had been sequencing the first whole human genome and personalized medicine. That was the dream. And uh, the the reality back then was it had cost $2.7 billion and it took 13 years of computing power to sequence the first whole human genome. We were not ready for prime time. Nowhere near it. Uh, now we're down to less than $1,000 per genome. We're heading for $100. We'll probably go to $10. And uh, this is becoming a massive artificial intelligence project. We are going to be going to our geneticists uh, uh, every year or every other year to figure out uh, what genes in our bodies have mutated. Uh, the earliest manifestation of disease is a mutation. We will be able to catch cancer in, in, in stage one, even, even pancreatic cancer. Uh, that's wow. a grail study that just came out. So uh, why the starting point, as you can see, is, okay, have the costs come down low enough in this technology? And we use something called Wright's Law. Wright's law, the, the actual um, equation is for every cumulative doubling in units produced, costs decline at a consistent rate. So Wright's law is a relative of Moore's law, uh, but uh, it is a function of units, whereas Moore's law is a function of time. And actually Wright's law has done better in forecasting what was going to happen to the semiconductor industry in recent years uh, than Moore's law itself has. So that is central to our, our um, uh, uh, research. And then this idea of cutting across sectors, if this is going to become an exponential growth platform, it can't just hit one sector. It's going to have to be opened up sort of like the internet. Many people had no idea how ubiquitous it was going to become. Uh, well, and, and the same with battery technology. Uh, you know, batteries, we've uh, gotten used to cell phones and, and, um, and, and laptops. But this idea that batteries could actually run cars, 
really no one thought that was going to happen, especially not the way Elon Musk was doing it. Uh, it wasn't going to happen for 10 years. And again, underestimated, completely wrong. We're ready for prime time now. The total cost of ownership of an electric vehicle is lower than that of a gas-powered vehicle. And EV sales uh, are starting to pull away from gas-powered sales. So I want to come back to Tesla in a few moments, but I have to ask, so how does this translate into selecting a specific stock and yep. saying, okay, I want this company in one of these portfolios that I'm holding? Okay. So we'll, we'll uh, take the next stage in. Uh, we take a white sheet of paper. That's our start. And we task our uh, autonomous vehicle analyst, Tasha Keeney, in 2014, uh, with, okay, what's going to go into an autonomous vehicle? What is it? We, are, we have no preconceived notions. Go out there, talk to the people who are making this happen. That's why we want to be a part of those communities. And uh, one of our brainstorms, uh, every Friday we do have a brainstorm, she came back and she said, well, you know, it appears that the brains of an autonomous vehicle uh, are going to be GPUs. The brains are the central nervous system. Now, at that time, PC sales were dropping at a double-digit rate. NVIDIA was considered nothing but a PC gaming chip company. And here I have an analyst coming into our brainstorm saying, it appears GPUs are going to be the brains. And then we have another analyst uh, who's focused on artificial intelligence, who spent nine years at NVIDIA, saying, okay, well, that makes sense because autonomous vehicles, that's a, an AI project, an artificial intelligence project, and, and NVIDIA is probably going to be the biggest player there. And I'm looking at both of them. I've been around the track a few times, uh, many times, uh, uh, and, uh, for that matter, and I've always owned NVIDIA because gaming was going through various iterations, interestingly, but I'd never heard anyone talk about autonomous vehicles and artificial intelligence in the context of NVIDIA. NVIDIA, which was in our uh, next generation internet portfolio at maybe a 2% uh, position for gaming, went into what we call now our autonomous technology and robotics portfolio. We took it right up. We started legging into it 1%, 2%. It ended up being in the top 10, close to a 10% position uh, because it is one of the biggest players. It's going to be other than Tesla it probably will be the biggest AI chip manufacturer for, uh, for vehicles. Now, we just had a different take on this, different take in two ways. One, time horizon. Most people could care less that, at that, could have cared less at that time that NVIDIA was going to have anything to do with AI or autonomous, just it wasn't relevant to the, the companies they were investing in and the next one to two years. It was so much more relevant to us uh, and so I think that time different investment time horizon difference gives us a lot of opportunities to take advantage of misconceptions or short-term disappointments in stocks like NVIDIA. And of course, PCs at that time were dropping at a double-digit rate. We had a lot of time to build up that position. And it went from $14 or $14 to $20 to $300 in two years. Now that's kind of well, that's better than VC-like returns. Well, guess what? That is one illustration of how inefficiently priced innovation is in the public equity markets in contrast to the private equity markets. So, so let's talk about something else that I think we can argue as uh, inefficiently priced. You mentioned Tesla. 
It's one of your biggest holdings at about 10% in one of your funds. You're not merely bullish on Tesla. You're, this is going to change the world and change everything. Uh, and your price target keeps going up. It started out around 4,000, went to 6,000. I think I read somewhere 7,000 was in the offing. Are you still as bullish on Tesla as you ever were? Yes, indeed. Uh, so we have, of course, adjusted our forecasts. Remember, we have a five-year forecast for the mm -hmm. coronavirus. It really does very little to move our model. Um, uh, so our price target, just because of the coronavirus, and we tend not to adjust for this sort of thing, but many people were asking us. Went, so we redid the models, went from 7,000 to 6,800. So it really didn't matter. You know, That's the it, stock. <laughs> but that's just our base case. That's our base right. case. Assumes that they'll they have a thirty percent shot at, at becoming an autonomous platform. It assumes that they won't go up in market share at all. They'll just hold their seventeen percent global market share, and that is the one assumption that is changing radically here. Uh, we are seeing other traditional auto manufacturers as they are seeing their balance sheet under some stress, sheets under some stress, they're pulling away from some of their EV projects. Uh, I just saw that Cruise Automation, which is GM's autonomous division, just laid off 8% of its workforce after in 2019 going on a huge hiring spree. So that, you know, they're having to throttle back on some of these uh, projects. So our assumption is that we're probably wrong on uh, the 17% market share uh, staying stable. It's probably going to go up because Tesla is getting more aggressive it's getting more aggressive in terms of its investments. Uh, and it now has what looks like a, a fortress balance sheet compared to the other auto man manufacturers when at precisely this time last year, it was sinking because traditional auto analysts were saying, this company is going to run out of cash. And you know, my response then was, wait a minute, aren't, aren't the markets open? It can't run out. It's not going to run out of the cash. We're certainly going to be there. The other top 10 investors are going to be there for, for them. And this is these are bargain basement prices. So we were averaging down aggressively as it sank, you know, below 200 into the 180s. And of course, now it's over 800. Uh, that's just one year. And just think about Fortress balance sheet versus they're running out of cash a year ago. It's yeah, they were crazy. they were able to raise money pretty easily, weren't they? Yes, they were. Yes, they were. So, so what would it take to get you to say our model about Tesla is wrong? What could possibly happen to make you change your mind? Well, we used to think, and we do have a scoring system when it comes to innovation. We have a 6.6 .6 metric uh, scoring, uh, scoring system, 0 to 10 each. And um, in the beginning, we were focused on thesis risk, which is one of our risk met our metrics. Right. Uh, and the question was, are regulators going to allow this? Uh, and so we had the thesis risk on it back then was pretty high. Um, what we've seen since it's uh, gone through its own, seeing fatalities in its own cars and having the regulators take a close look at it, uh, we have seen that the regulators have warmed up because the regulators know 80 to 90% of fatalities are caused by human error. 
Uh, and so, and now uh, Tesla has co is collecting. They've collected uh, at least 12 billion miles. It's probably 14 billion miles worth of driving data to feed their AI engine. Uh, and uh, the more data they have, the safer this vehicle is going to be. It's going to be the safest vehicle on the road. In many ways, it already is. Uh, so that one has gone down. Um, another, I can just, using Tesla to, to illustrate is a, is a very good one to uh, give you a sense of the scoring system. So people management and culture. Okay, so Elon, according to some people, is a nutcase. We do not agree with that at all. Um, but his tweets uh, do... do uh, do 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 get quite um, uh, shall we say? I don't know. Pretty wild sometimes. They're colorful. <laughs> colorful. That's the word I was looking for. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> and and so we uh, we we really don't care about those tweets. The only one we did care about was funding secured. Uh, so the first the first metric that we score is people management and culture, right? And this was bad. It wasn't true. It was going to get the SEC on his back. It was going to be a distraction to the board, to management, to employees, and to shareholders. So we docked that score. Within two months uh, of that, uh, and, and we had taken profits, uh, within two months, uh, uh, Tesla released specs for its uh, AI chip. We had not expected that uh, to, to happen for a year came out and James Wang, who had been at NVIDIA and knows a thing or two about chip specs, said, whoa, if this is true, they're four years ahead of NVIDIA. They're four years ahead of NVIDIA. Not because NVIDIA is behind, but because NVIDIA has to operate at the cadence of traditional auto manufacturers, which is right. four to five year design cycles, whereas Tesla's design cycles are six months to one year. So that's the real difference here. That score, moats, barriers to went, entry went up. So you can see how uh, we have a, I haven't described the other three, but we have a lot of scores to consider every Monday at our stock meetings. So, so let's stay with Elon for a moment. Some of his, now I'm, I'm fascinated by him and think he's an intriguing guy. Some of his comments and behaviors have been pretty wacky. Most recently, a few months ago, he said, oh, this coronavirus will be gone by April. But the one that I think really shook everybody was going on a, a, a podcast and getting stoned with Joe Rogan. How do you reconcile a CEO behaving like that, kind of acting out? It doesn't make the cars any less safe. It doesn't make the vision any less visionary. But it's not what you really want to see in a CEO. So I listened to that two and a half hour Joe Rogan interview, and there was no way that Elon was stoned. I really think that was a prank. I, I really do. Um, and we did a, I believe we did a podcast with him right after. He is the most sober thinking man, uh, you know, certainly in terms of uh, autonomous vehicles, artificial intelligence, electric vehicles. Uh, that I know. We keep our eye on the prize, and the prize here are uh, the prizes here are Tesla's competitive advantages. And if you if if CNBC and they pulled that they put that clip up, everyone did, but probably Constantly. dozens of times, dozens. If anyone at CNBC had listened to that podcast, they would have heard the visionary 
in in action and said, wow, you know, when it comes to artificial intelligence, uh, there's there's no one uh, who's going to do better in the automotive space than Tesla. And that is the secret sauce for autonomous. And if we're going to get to autonomous, uh, you know, the company with the most data, Tesla has that, uh, iterative algorithms, supercomputing power, and the best chip, uh, that's Tesla, is going to win. And this is not a 20 to 25% gross margin company, if that's the case. This is going to be a 60 to 70% gross margin company. So now we feel that there's so much um, uh, misinformation out there, mostly because traditional auto analysts are following this stock. And, you know, God bless them. They, they, it's a hard, it's a very difficult stock for them to follow because they're not robotics analysts, which autonomous vehicles are. They're not energy storage analysts, which autonomous electric vehicles are. And they're not artificial intelligence analysts. Our three analysts uh, collaborate on our model. There's no way these traditional auto analysts can analyze this company. This is, talk about a fall through the cracks company. This is disruptive innovation at its finest. Uh, so we keep our eye on the technology prize and make sure that he's meeting milestones. We adjust for Elon time, which is usually a, a year too early. But he, right. as he has said himself, he gets the job done. So you mentioned a lot of different technology, but I did not hear you mention software, which is kind of, mm -hmm. to me, the thing that makes Tesla so fascinating. It's, it's a mobile computer as much as it is an automobile. Tell us about the software innovation from Tesla that makes sure. them so unique. So inherent in my comments about AI is software. This is software 2.0. This is going to be transportation as a service. So uh, there is no other auto manufacturer yet. Uh, I, I believe this is still true. Uh, who can um, do over the air software updates to improve a car's performance. They can do over the air software updates to inform, improve infotainment, but not performance. And in fact, I think, if I'm not mistaken, in 24 states, something close to that, it is illegal to do that. Because guess what? Uh, the dealers have a lot of control over their uh, state legislators. And uh, the dealers make most of their money from service. Well, Tesla's idea here is to anticipate when a car is going to have problems and fix it over the air before the owner even sees it. Now, the only time, I have a, a, a Model 3, I got it in September of 18, and I've had to take it in uh, for only one reason. I had a nail in my tire, and they couldn't do an over-the-air software update to fix that, unfortunately. But otherwise, I have not had one problem with it, and my car is improving daily, weekly, if not daily. They're doing over-the-air software date updates all the time. No one else can so, do that. So last pushback. Here's the pushback I hear about Tesla, and I think it's kind of intriguing, and I'm curious as to your views. So Tesla has already won won the war, and the war is, hey, we're going to move away from carbon-based fuel, from gasoline-based fuel to electronic, battery-driven automobiles. They won. Every major manufacturer was forced uh, fearfully to compete with them. Uh, from whether it's Porsche or Volvo or everybody else, there isn't an automaker in the world that 
doesn't have at least a dozen cars either out or coming out or committed to, and that we are going to be awash in a world of EVs soon enough. So Tesla has won the war. How can they win the battle for their company and their market share? Yeah, this is the the question we've been facing from the beginning. And uh, in fact, a, a Bloomberg journalist asked me uh, probably six months ago that question. She said, they're only now getting started. And I said, that's the problem. That's the problem. They're so far behind. They'll never be able, they, right now, Tesla has 14 billion miles worth of data to feed its artificial intelligence uh, machine, right? Uh, the most that anyone else has out there is, I, and I believe Google has released this number about four months ago, 20 million. So 14 billion because it has 600 to 700,000 robots out there collecting data for it right now. My robot is one of them, right? Versus the pilot test that everyone else is doing in this, that, or the other city. Uh, this is a big data problem. And uh, I do believe with, uh, with the coronavirus that uh, Autonomous has an even better shot now than, than we thought pre-coronavirus. Pre uh, mm. I think uh, what you'll also see here so that uh, Tesla can increase that mileage, again, that's really important, increase that uh, mileage uh, um, gap. They are going to launch their own ride-hailing service, we believe, this year uh, with drivers. And uh, what they'll do is they'll say to these, uh, these people who are probably out-of-work Uber drivers, you saw, see all the layoffs there, um, they are going to say to these people, okay, you can buy a, a Model 3, $5,000 down, uh, if you are going to become one of our ride-hailing, ride and you can work down the payments by paying uh, us off as you go. The more you hmm. work, the more miles you collect for us, the more you work to solve your uh, financing issue, you know, it's a win-win. So I think they're going to do that. Think about it. Their gross margins or auto gross margins right now are around 20%. That's just auto. Uh, ride hailing is going to be much higher, much, much higher. Uh, so that most analysts have not incorporated that into their models. We have not incorporated it into our models. It is a call option. Huh. Quite, quite fascinating. Let me pivot to something innovative that your firm has done. And from really the earliest days of ARC, you have embraced ETFs. You pretty much have eschewed the traditional mutual fund model. You have at least seven ETFs that cover the five major platforms, plus um, the Israel Innovative Technology ETF. What made you decide to say, let's not do this the traditional Wall Street mutual fund approach. Let's go with an exchange-traded fund that is inexpensive to transact and very tax efficient to have transactions within? Well, uh, we're students of disruptive innovation. And I mentioned uh, uh, that while many of the new technology platforms were not ready for prime time, after 0809, we said, okay, that's a major disruption. The world is going to change because of what, ha what just happened. And so we started following the financial services industry to, to monitor what those changes might be. ETFs started gaining share against mutual funds at an accelerated rate. 
once again, better, cheaper, faster, more productive, more creative in many ways. And uh, I, I heard, I had heard that the SEC was going to approve um, fully active, fully transparent equity ETFs. And so I put my hand up at um, my last firm and I don't think they were ready to do it, but I thought, why not, why not skate to where the puck is going? And so we thought, okay, we'll start. It's, it's a very good wrapper. Now, I will say that our partner, uh, Resolute, which uh, American Beacon is the distributor, they, we do a sub-advise for a mutual fund for them. Uh, mm -hmm. So, you know, defined contribution plans uh, can't own ETFs. Uh, right. Now, that might be changing with fractionalization, but uh, right now they can't. So mutual funds do serve a purpose. But we said, okay, this is a really good deal for the end consumer. This is an innovation. Why don't we, why don't we innovate in our own space? And that was just the tip of it. That was the tip of it. It was active equity fully transparent, not only are we fully transparent in, in terms of disclosing our holdings at the end of the day, but we had to become fully transparent in posting our trades once we completed them because market makers were so scared of, uh, of who we were and would we catch them flat-footed. So that when I say radical transparency, we did that. Uh, and then I said, well, wait a minute, this research ecosystem social media, let's use some of the technologies out there that have disrupted other industries and try to disrupt our own. Uh, well, uh, the two and a half years in, we're sitting at $40 million. I had been funding the firm by myself for three full years. And I'm saying, okay, we need to pivot. This is not working. And so I thought, Okay, well, maybe that was just a really bad idea. As it turns out, being the first truly active manager in an ETF um, uh, has has paid in dividends enormously. We we did start managing uh, managing separately managed accounts uh, uh, for institutions and others, uh, but the, the American Beacon started to find an appetite uh, for our ETFs, and now uh, our ETF complex is over five billion dollars. Uh, so more than uh, I ran in total at um, at Alliance Bernstein, and our total complex is approaching $14 billion. So I want to talk about your largest ETF, which, if my notes are correct, is over $3 billion, and over the yes. past five years has returned 204% versus the S&P 500, which returned 54%. So it's hard to imagine that that's a return for five years. Six years ago, you were thinking, hey, is this the wrong idea? Is this not working? Was it just a matter of time for waiting for it to catch on? What what was the hesitation um, in 2014 and 2015? Uh, if you'll remember, uh, in 2014, we launched late 14 in October, and within Within two weeks, uh, just about the time we were having our launch party, uh, our the ARKK was down seven percent. That's how we launched the firm. And I was saying, I was saying, well, you know, innovation gains traction during difficult times. And just remember, this is an opportunity. Of course, that's what I had to say. It was two weeks. We were two weeks old, <laughs> and we went through during the first. I'm going to say until 
the first quarter of 2016, when the market, if you remember, first quarter, energy prices dropped into the 20s. Uh, we had China, uh, many people thinking it was imploding. We had more negative sentiment in the market, uh, uh, I believe, than even we had during March this year. Uh, so for the first three years, first two and a half, three years after launching, we were going from one risk on, risk off period to another. And so we were choppy in the beginning. But I think what happened was this mantra, innovation gains traction during tough times. People began to see that it was gaining traction and they began to see in their own portfolios, they didn't have enough exposure to it. And what is this artificial intelligence, autonomous vehicle, uh, genomics, uh, uh, you know, energy storage. What, you know, I don't have that. I don't have that. And they began to look at us as sort of a niche strategy to generate alpha for them. Uh, but now we're getting more and more people uh, understanding, no, 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 no. This is also a hedge against the value traps that are uh, populating your traditional portfolios increasingly. Uh, so traditional value, traditional growth, uh, the, that's the traditional world order that these five innovation platforms are disrupting. And just to put that in, in, in context, we have never had five innovation platforms evolving at the same time. Never. You have to go back to the early 1900s, telephone, electricity, internal combustion engine, technologically enabled platforms that were deflationary in nature uh, that were evolving at the same time. Uh, transform the world completely. Uh, we ended, we were enjoyed the roaring 20s there, right? Um, and here we have five. Uh, so I, I think that one of the reasons there uh, that our, our stocks are so inefficiently priced is this time horizon discrepancy, ours versus the traditional markets. Uh, but also, we've never been in a period like this before, so no one really expects much change. This old world sort of tried and true strategy, benchmark, passive, worked when the world wasn't changing that much. But now the world's changing at an accelerating rate, and, and it's hitting all sectors of the economy. So our strategy is a hedge, and I think this is how people are using it increasingly. And my dream, of course, is to get it to be a core strategy, because this is the way the world is going to work. That's how I use it personally. So, so let's stay with the idea of innovation and finance. Um, you have uh, an ETF that looks at fintech, but I want to speak more broadly what do you think of the future of the old money center banks versus new financial institutions? And I know if I don't ask about blockchain and crypto, I'm going to get all sorts of emails. So I have to tee that up. But let's just start with the big banks. What does the future look for a Chase um, Manhattan Bank or a, um, a JP Morgan Chase or a Goldman Sachs versus some of the more nimble online-only technologies um, like Venmo and others? Well, it's very interesting, this whole tried-and-true concept. One of the reasons the banks uh, scaled to the levels they have is because of tremendous customer loyalty. Uh, the average lifespan, I may not have the number right, but historically, of a checking account is something crazy like 16 years. No other industry has, uh, you know, has that kind of customer loyalty. That is changing. That is changing. And uh, one of the reasons it's changing is uh, 
better, cheaper, faster, more productive, more creative. Uh, you have got the Square Cash App. You've got uh, PayPal Venmo. Uh, you've got technology entering the space. And these technology uh, providers are enjoying, well, they're, what they're doing is they're launching viral networks. These are social networks. Uh, the banks, their cost of customer acquisition, and they've been quite willing to pay this because of the customer loyalty they've enjoyed over the years, their, the, their average cost to acquire one customer uh, it, it ranges, it depends, for checking accounts versus credit accounts, uh, cre uh, credit card accounts, $350 per customer to $1,500 per customer. And uh, for, for Square's Cash App and uh, PayPal's Venmo, it's $20 uh, because of the viral nature of those networks. If you look at what's happening, how quickly they are, they are going viral, and you compare them to Facebook and the early social networks, uh, you know, in the uh, 05, 06, 04 timeframe, the uptake here is twice as fast. And it makes sense. When my children were first getting onto Facebook, they didn't want me knowing what they were doing on yeah. Facebook, right? right. On, a, on a payment app, you bet. They, they want their parents, both parents on, you know, supporting them <laughs> and sending their allowance or what have you, especially when they're at school. So they're bringing their parents in as well, right? The banks don't have a shot here. They don't have a shot at this. So we think that the banks are going to in commoditize increasingly. And there's going to be another problem for banks. Uh, in the kind of environment we see, this disruptive innovation, deflation-prone environment, what you will see for the next few years at least is what we started to see last year. Uh, you will see flattening of the yield curve, if not inversion. And the reason for that is uh, short rates are influenced by economic activity right now. Longer rates, long rates are, are um, influenced more by inflation, right, and longer-term uh, growth trends. So we think the growth is going to be much stronger than expected. Inflation is going to be much lower than expected. And th that is probably already true because our economic statistics do not capture, uh, we think, the digital economy correctly yet. So I think the yield curve will be flat to inverting, and that is really harmful to these traditional banks. Now, one of the things um, I was fascinated by with Venmo um, are you could change this in the privacy settings, but it is a social network and you could see everything that all your friends and colleagues are paying for or getting paid for, which Absolutely. can be horrifically embarrassing. I had to warn some people, you know that's fairly public what you just paid for. They were, they were unaware of the fact that uh, that was being shared, but but let's stick with alternative um, fintech and talk about blockchain. What is blockchain yeah. going to do for finance and how can one of any of us invest in that technology short of buying Bitcoin type speculative uh, trading vehicles? So I'll just wrap up on the, the last point by saying if you want to learn more, actually Max Friedrich Took that, uh, took that database that you're referring to that could become quite embarrassing for people and mm -hmm. analyze it. So you'll see that we put a white paper out on it if you'd, really? if you'd like to check it out. It's on our website. Yes. Fascinating. Um, 
Yeah, and and it gives you these this cost of customer acquisition and lots of other stats that help make the point I just made. Um, in terms of Bitcoin and blockchain technology, so we were the first public asset managers to gain exposure to Bitcoin through GBTC, the Bitcoin Investment Trust, um, in September 15, when Bitcoin was $250. And we wrote it up all the way to $20,000. We didn't sell. Uh, it started to fork on us and delivered what we learned uh, the hard way was unqualified income. Uh, grant or trust cannot be diversified. And so uh, there were tax ramifications. We were able to maneuver out because of the ETF structure out of right. Bitcoin. Better lucky than smart because that was the peak in the market, right? So we got out of most of it. Today in our discretionary accounts, uh, SMAs, we, we don't own them in ETFs because they're 40 act and have this unqualified income problem. Right. Uh, in discretionary, we have a 6% position in Bitcoin. And our confidence since it dropped from 20,000 down to 3,000, uh, 3,500 earlier this year has actually increased in Bitcoin, this global digital currency. One of the reasons is it's an insurance policy against confiscation of wealth. And the odds of confiscation of wealth have gone up. They've gone up in two ways. Inflation, regardless of whether you think velocity is falling now and might continue to fall for a while, it will stop falling at some point if, uh, uh, if the kindling is lit. Uh, so that's, uh, that's one reason. But the other reason is you, you, you watch Saudi Arabia and you watch a prince basically confiscate the wealth from his own cousins. Uh, so everywhere in the world, there is this issue, much more so than in the United States. So we believe that the insurance policy that Bitcoin provides, you know, keep your code, your key uh, code in your head and just walk across the border and access it, you know, without anybody knowing um, that 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 uh, uh, the reason that reason is uh, is worth pro it will, will could create anywhere from a one to two trillion dollar market. Right now we're at about 150 to 100 and uh, 100, we're probably about 175 billion dollars in Bitcoin. So that, that right there is a tenfold increase and that's just one use case. Um, mm. So, uh, and, and you know, when uh, India went through its demonetization, you can see what they did right away. They banned cryptocurrencies uh, uh, and, and they basically said, you go to jail if you use Bitcoin. They have changed their mind on that. That's very interesting to us. That's very interesting to us. So, so John and the folks uh, at SIC have given us a couple extra minutes, and I want to go to Slido and take some of the questions. They're stacking, stacking up there. Um, and the one that seems to, to really um, move to the top is the following – Mark Yusko, Yusko made the case for value stocks and real assets as opposed to high PE stocks, which one day might crash. If so, how will this impact ARK stocks? How does this affect your thinking about traditional value versus growth? Okay, so uh, we think very carefully about this because in order – so we're looking at stranded assets in the value world. That's basically what innovation is going to do. Um, you can think about our cars as a stranded asset. You know, that's a we've we have to prepay a lot for transportation. We're going into a world where you won't have to do that anymore, and most of us won't want to. We want might want one high end pick Tesla, one high end car, uh, 
that's really fun to drive. Well, yeah. others might have a hobby and might want to collect, I don't know, a one high-end car, and then just go autonomous the rest of, of the way. So, hmm. you know, the entire internal combustion engine world and all the infrastructure built around it is at risk here. I mentioned banking is at risk. Energy, very much at risk. Now, after energy has done what it's just done, we don't, we don't make that point too much because now we're seeing capital spending is collapsing in the energy space. So what usually happens with a dying asset, and we think this is the equivalent to whale oil uh, as we were moving over to kerosene, what, what happened with whale oil is there was a collapse in investment in whale oil. And so you saw very volatile whale oil prices as kerosene was making its way and but was very low penetration. We think the same thing's gonna happen to oil. You have a lot of volatility, but the, the trend is down. The trend is down. Uh, hmm. So so we think large parts of the value space are at risk here of inner innovation disrupting it. And we pick our spots carefully just with that knowledge in mind. Uh, look at the research on our site and even rails, for example. Most people think, okay, that has got to be a protected area if there ever was one. Um, no. Autonomous truck platoons are going to come in and utter undercut rails in pricing. So right now it costs 12 cents, 12 cents uh, per ton mile to transport freight by truck, sort of point to point. You're paying a premium for that, uh, whereas it costs four cents. So just a third of what it costs. Autonomous truck platoons, by our estimates, are going to um, enable freight transportation for three cents per ton mile. So we, by our calculation, there's a half a trillion dollars of brewing of stranded assets in the rail sector. Uh, you see what's happening to the airlines. Well, if we've got autonomous driving, uh, I can tell you, I do not want to go to the airport to go fly to Washington DC or, or to, uh, or to Boston. I would much prefer to go point to point in my autonomous car and work, talk to the office, conduct business. So I think it's gonna hurt short haul airlines, uh, not only the coronavirus, but this move toward autonomous. Interesting question about AI and autonomous vehicles. Do you see China winning the AI autonomous vehicle game? And if so, why should we invest in, in Western companies in that space? I think China will win in China. I do not think China will win in the rest of the world. Now, what, what is interesting is they've been so uh, welcoming to Tesla. Tesla is the first manufacturer of any kind allowed into China without a local partner. And, you know, the, the suspicious types uh, will say, well, of course, they're just going to uh, reverse engineer with the Chinese employees in there. And that, that could very well be. We've talked to Elon about that, and he says eh, they're not going to get the secret sauce. I will say they've been, I've watched them. The Chinese, uh, I remember at Alliance Bernstein, there was a, a venture investment in a mapping company in China with uh, the thought that, you know, this company would map out China. Are you kidding? They stole that and basically, you know, wiped it off the face of the earth. So, no, they're not going to they're not going to let a foreign company dominate China. But China is not collecting miles on U.S. or European roads, to our knowledge, uh, whereas Tesla is. Hmm, right. Here's another very interesting question. Does being limited to public markets limit your ability to invest early enough 
in the truly disruptive, innovative companies to reap the full gains? Uh, a very interesting uh, trend happened, starting with the tech and telecom bust, and even more so after 0809 the meltdown. And that was the move to passive first, and then even for public-private players, a move away from innovation in the public space, and an they got their exposure to innovation in the private space, which in the early days was fine. I mean, the rewards were enormous. The private space has been overvalued. And I mean, we're, we're writing a white paper about venture capital and liquidation preferences and all the concoctions that have developed over the last few years, which tell us that it is just way overvalued. And of course, the SoftBank's vision fund uh, was sort of the exclamation point, the aha moment for a lot of people. So what we've been watching is Take Moderna. Everybody knows about Moderna now because they've just developed, uh, uh, they're in phase two for, or phase three actually, for uh, a coronavirus vaccine. We own Arcturus. We don't own Moderna. They're both wonderful companies. Moderna came out in December of 2018 at uh, 30 times sales. Arcturus in our portfolio, same space, RNA uh, vaccines, uh, but but Arcturus has a better delivery platform, we believe. They're both fine companies. Uh, Arcturus was uh, somewhere in the three-time sales range. Uh, it was somewhere two to five. It was around three-time sales. 30 times, three times. That's a big discrepancy. I asked our analyst, why is this discrepancy? Why? And she said, I don't know. I said, okay, we'll buy more Arcturus and let them have Moderna as it's going public. It, Moderna got cut in half within its first six months. And that was, uh, that was public market investors doing a little uh, more com comparative work and saying, I don't think so. That's, that valuation is too rich. Uh, recently, both Arcturus and Moderna have been on fire for the same reason. Uh, I think Arcturus has gone up more than Moderna since the coronavirus hit. Wow, quite fascinating. I see we're out of time. Thank you so much, Catherine. Let me turn Thank it back you. over to our host. Um, fascinating hour. Really appreciate all your insight. Thank you. Thank you very much for hosting me and uh, and uh, for your questions, your wonderful questions. And thank yes, you, Ed. Thank you both. Thank you, thank you both. I'm so inspired, Catherine, by your approach to investing. I'm a big proponent of disruptive investing, but I'm even more inspired by how you conduct business. Uh, it's it's just it's the way it should be. So I wish we had another hour. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you. And Barry Ritholtz, I'm just I'm so happy to see you again, Barry. I've been a big fan of yours since Bailout Nation. It's been great to see your success. Well, thank you so much. This was absolutely a fascinating um, conversation. And, and you guys, speaking of pivoting, have managed to overcome the obstacles of the shelter in place very well. When John said to me, we're thinking about taking this online, I'm like, are you sure people have tried that? It hasn't worked. You guys have seemed to make it work. Yes, we've got, uh, th there's a lot of people that you don't see behind the virtual screen. Um, so it's 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 more than a Zoom call and that's what's made all the difference is a great team that's that right. we have. So thank Absolutely. you for noticing, I appreciate it. All right, well, thank you both very much. We'll be back on Thursday to wrap up the SIC, but just because it's the last day, don't think it won't be just as intense as the others. We're going to start at 11 a.m. New York time with Leon Cooperman. 
Then we'll get into residential and commercial real estate, which I know a lot of you have been asking about, and we've got two of the very best in the real estate sector joining us. We'll see a debate between two trader warriors, as John likes to call them. We'll open a window into the future with Peter Diamandis, and we're going to end the day with John Malden and a panel tying together many of the ideas you've heard so far and how they impact investors. I can't wait. Thank you for being here with us. I'm Ed D'Agostino from Malden Economics. Join me Thursday for the final day of the Strategic Investment Conference 2020. See you then.